0: We're looking at the pastoral epistles this morning, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. You often hear comments about a politician's ability to lead or a leadership style of a certain CEO and, and for corporations and for, for even countries, it requires leaders in order for it to be run properly and the church needs good leadership as well. In the first century, this was as important as, as ever as these young congregations were beginning to take shape, and, um, and so they needed to make sure that they knew what it what was necessary in order for them to lead. I mean, imagine the types of questions that these early pastors would have: What types of leader, the types of leaders does a church require? What characteristics mark a good leader? Can can both men and women serve in these roles? How should they serve? What should they teach? What does a successful gospel ministry look like? So Paul, in these three short letters, intends to answer some of these questions that may come up in people's minds about these early pastors and leaders, and so we're going to look at those today. Let me invite you to pray with me as we begin. Father, we thank You that You have left us with Your Word and You have not left us to guess what You want for us. You haven't left us to to search out Your will in some other way, but You have recorded for us uh, Your Word in 66 books, all contained in one unit, that unify to make Your holy Word. And it is Your Word that we respect and we love because we recognize that it is, it is Your eternal Word, the Word which will stand forever. And we respect it because we've seen how it has worked in our lives and how You have used it to, to voice Your concern and Your demand for our lives and also to show us how we ought to live as believers. And so we pray that You'd help us to think about uh, how Your Word um, affects us and our um, church and and how we operate. We pray that you'd help us to respond to it rightly so that you would be honored with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin with the background of the pastoral epistles. And um, Paul wrote these three letters to Timothy and Titus. Titus, two of the most trusted disciples that he had at this time. And... Um, and these became known as the pastoral epistles. And although it's not completely about concerns given to um, the, the office of the pastor, there are other things, so, so don't completely check out here for us. There, it is to show how, how the church does operate. Um, primarily, that is what he is focusing on. He's trying to show these, these leaders how they ought to live. The author is, of course, Paul. At the beginning of each of these three books, uh, they begin with Paul, an apostle of Christ, his, his regular um, beginning of each letter. So we see that Paul wrote it. And he probably wrote 1 Timothy while under house arrest towards the end of Acts chapter 28. He probably wrote 1 Timothy. And then Titus, he probably wrote between his two imprisonments in Rome. And um, maybe on his way to Spain that he had planned to do for a while, and then Second Timothy was written last, and uh, that was written in a Roman dungeon, probably at the end of his life. So First Timothy and Titus were written between 62 and 65 A.D. Okay, so this is before the destruction of the temple, which was in which year? Does anyone know? 70. 70 A.D. Right. And then and then uh, so First Timothy and Titus were written between 62 and 65. And then 2 Timothy was probably written around 67 A.D. And so we'll look at these letters in chronological order. Um, Jared, could you hit that uh, air-condition for for us? Thank you. Um, So 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy seems to be about protecting the gospel. Protecting the gospel. It is the earliest of Paul's pastoral epistles, again around 62 A.D., and he probably wrote this under house arrest in Rome. You can read about this in Acts chapter 27, 28, when Paul was, was going before these leaders and then eventually um, had, had to be under house arrest because of proclaiming the gospel. Um, will someone read Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31? Just raise your hand. Gail, thank you. Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. It seems as if the major problem at this time is that there's there's some corruption that, that may be infiltrating in the church and so Paul warns against this here in Acts twenty, verses twenty nine through thirty one. All right, so Paul says, "Watch out for these savage wolves that could come in your midst. They will rise up. In fact, it's not that they'll come from the outside and attack you. They're they're more covert than that. They start from the inside, and they look like sheep, and then they come and they and they expose themselves in a in a way that was would be harmful to the church." And so Paul says, "You need to what I've done is I've made sure that I've taught to you the whole counsel of God so that you'll be protected against that sort of thing." And so Ephesus was particularly vulnerable to this type of false teaching. And so what he does here for Timothy is he continues to to show him that he needs to protect this gospel. That it it's not automatic that everything's going to be perfect and and, and just a really nice tranquil environment in which the, the gospel is going to operate. In fact, even within the local church that Christ died for, there can be some opposition to this gospel. So he tells Timothy protect the gospel. Well, what do we know about Timothy? Timothy would have been an interesting person to to leave behind to shepherd this situation. When we think about him, it doesn't seem that, uh, that he has the strength to weather some of these challenges that Paul is setting him up against. After all, he was relatively young. Remember, Paul says, don't let anybody look down on you because of your age. He's probably around 40 years old a number that's seeming younger and younger every year for me. <laughs> Timothy is, is from the city of Lystra, and he was probably converted during Paul's first missionary journey and probably joined him in the second missionary journey, Acts 16. You can read about that. His mother was a Jew, and his father was a Greek. And so, he had an interesting, um, there was an interesting dynamic there for him as to how he was going to minister to these people Um, Both his mother and his grandmother were Christians. Remember Lois and, I believe, Eunice in 1 Timothy chapter 1? Um, They were both Christians and apparently either led Timothy to Christ or were building the foundation for when Paul actually led him to Christ there on his first missionary journey. And apparently, Timothy was a bit of a timid guy because Paul warns against this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, God does not give us a spirit of timidity or of fear, but of power and love and of discipline. So that may be reading into it a little bit too much, but he could have been a guy that maybe wasn't very forceful in his demeanor, wasn't very straightforward, a little bit of a guy who held back a little bit. But one thing that we do know is that he had a close relationship with Paul. And Paul seemed to, to go with him throughout several of his journeys. Um, we read about those in Acts and Philippians. And um, so it seems they have a mutual love for one another and, and their ministry. The purpose of 1 Timothy, as I mentioned, was to protect the gospel. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul kind of gives the theme statement here of, of what he's trying to do here in this letter. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He wanted to show Timothy what it, what what a person should do within the household of God. How a person ought to live. And that's why I say it's more than just for Timothy saying how a person a believer ought to conduct himself in the house of God and um, so this this is the longest of the three pastoral epistles and uh, this is what we're going to briefly overview today there's a brief outline for you of first Timothy on the back of your handout basically you see that chapter 1 shows us uh, Paul shows Timothy that that he needs to fight for the gospel, chapters 2 and 3 that needs to guard the gospel by establishing order, and then chapters 4 through 6 protect the gospel through faithfulness. And the reason I put these outlines on there for is for your benefit when you're reading through these. If you have access to these handouts, it it helps because sometimes you get lost a little bit in the in in all the words and all the rhetoric and sometimes it gets a little bit um Difficult to see where you're at. And if you have an outline like this, you can say, oh yeah, okay, I see what Paul's doing here. This, this this makes sense with what he's talking about in this specific verse. Major themes and lessons from Timothy go along with the outline. First, Timothy is exhorted to fight the good fight by opposing false teachers and by being devoted as an example and a, and a faithful teacher. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, Verse 18, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Okay, So, Timothy, it's not going to be easy. There are going to be struggles when it comes to leading this church. So you need to fight. Chapter 4 shows Timothy about the character and the motivation of these false teachers that that they seek to control others. They, they're trying to, to pull together and get other people to follow them. And so Timothy is supposed to point these people out. Look at chapter 4, verse 6 with me. He's supposed to show that they they are foolish and their teachings are wrong chapter 4 verse 6 in pointing out these things to the brethren you'll be a good servant of Jesus of Christ Jesus constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the second doctrine of the sound doctrine which you have been following but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women on the other hand discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness for bodily discipline is only of little profit but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And skip down to verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Okay. Timothy, you need to protect the Gospel. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be people who come up and, and oppose this gospel that you're preaching and they're going to do it and they're going to do it by, by appealing even to Scripture. So, you need to be sound in your doctrine. You need to make sure that people understand what the, the basics, basic fundamentals of the faith are and show them that from the Scripture. Alright, so, so he needs to fight for the gospel. Secondly, chapters 2 and 3, he needs to guard the truth by establishing order in ministry here Paul gives instructions on how to handle public worship and the necessity of prayer chapter two verses one through eight he shows them uh, he he defines the roles of women in in the church chapter two verses nine through fifteen and then he outlines the qualifications for church leadership we're familiar with that passage where you have Verses one through eight of chapter three is the qualifications of an overseer or pastor, and then chapter three, verses nine through um, thirteen, is the is the office of the deacon. Um, With regard to the role of the women in church, our modern sensibilities often cause us to miss the positive force of what Paul is doing here. Many strongly react against Paul because they see this as being chauvinistic or oppressive against women. However, Paul is stating that these women should be instructed in the faith, chapter, 3, verses 9, or chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And so what he's doing is he's saying that, that women are necessary to worship, women are necessary to the body, but, but there also needs to be a sense of order in the church. And so, he also describes the roles of women and and what they are not to do when it comes to the church. They're not to exercise authority over men or publicly teach men in the gathering of the church. All right. so let's look at chapter 2, verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness okay so he's saying women ought to adorn themselves most importantly with what with godly, godliness okay and that's expressed in in their modesty right all right verse 11 a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness but i do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet for it was adam who was first created and then eve And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the women. The woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the hearing of children, the bearing of children. Excuse me, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Okay, so he begins and ends this passage by saying that women, the way that you adorn yourself, the best way that you you present yourself is in godliness. He begins by saying that in in verse ten that they ought to. To live up to this claim of godliness that they have, and he ends in verse 15 by saying that they they need to continue in faith and love. And one of the ways that 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 happens is by um, submitting to these rules of order that Paul has laid down. Now, in chapter three, verses one through seven, I'll come back to uh, women just a second. But in chapter three, verses one through seven, what we have is the qualifications for the overseer, the pastor, the, the elder, um, used interchangeably in Scripture, those three words, and then the deacons, verses eight through thirteen. And what we need to notice about these two lists is really how unremarkable the the qualifications are. Okay, both for the pastor and for the deacons, all all of the um, all of the requirements, I guess you could say, the qualifications, the essentials. They're all things that are required of all of us as believers, except one. And that is able to teach at the end of verse 2. Okay, so pastor, in addition to being... Let's look at some of these, okay? Maybe it's better just if we read it. Verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation. Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fine... Fond of sordid or dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and so on. Alright, so, so what you find there, if you, if you read through that list of qualifications, you're going to find that these are things that are required of all of us as believers, except for the one that's able to teach. That's something that, that is basically an added qualification for the overseer. And the point is is that, that these leaders in our churches should, should be men and women of character. Hey, they should be people of character, people who display these qualities. Um, so, so, leadership is not so much about what tasks they've done in the past or what kind of uh, credentials they've earned. It's more about character. Now, returning a moment for the to, to the role of women in the church. If we read through that whole passage, in fact, let's look at verse 11. Because... What you have is verses 8-10, through you're talking about the qualifications for deacons. And then look at verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. What's another translation say for that word women in verse 11? Wives. Wives. Okay. So, this has been the historical way of understanding or maybe a more recent, not historical is not a good word, a more recent way of understanding this passage that wives, that is, deacons' wives must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, and so on. But I would suggest to you that the translation that we have here in the New American Standard is actually a better one, which is women must likewise. It seems to me that what Paul is doing is he's laying out another office, another a set of qualifications for a specific office that's being laid down here, and that's why he says women must likewise. Okay, um, so here, here's the argument I guess that that has been used in the past that that deacons' wives have a special responsibility. But if that were the case, then why wouldn't pastors' wives have responsibilities laid out in Scripture, right? Is there any place where a pastor's wife has to meet certain qualifications? Not that I know of. So it would be kind of odd for Paul to, to make certain requirements for deacon's wives and not pastor's wives. So that's one reason why I would say that this is actually a separate office. This is not referring to deacon's wives. And that's why the word should be translated women instead of wives there in verse 11. Um, and further, he seems to be He seems to be comparing verse 11 to what he had previously said. He says, here's the qualifications of deacons. Then verse 11, likewise, women ought to be like this. So, Paul seems to be laying out another office here. And um, so, we could simply call this uh, probably the office of the deaconess or the, the woman deacon. And you you can read about that. You can read about the 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 fact that they actually exist in the book of Acts. Um, But it seems like what Paul is doing is he's saying there's there's two main offices, the pastor and deacon, but there also is this this uh, third one which seems to be women deacons, verse 11. All right. Any questions so far on what we've talked about, Vicky? Yeah, that's a good question Um, because it does seem that verses 8-10 through are the deacon's qualification and then he goes right back to verse 12. Deacons, which is masculine word. uh, In the Greek language, they have masculine and feminine words. And this would be referring to men only. So, deacons must be husbands and obviously verse 12, be husbands of one wife. Um, And that is part of the argument for why that's referring to the deacon's wives. And... um, so I, I would concede that, that that verses eight through ten and verses twelve through thirteen are talking about deacons and um could it be that the the type of making in all these verses really refers to both men and women and
1: that in verse eleven he's just kind of pointing out that women they tend to be slanderers, maybe and whatever I don't
0: know. Yeah, the the only pr- Yeah, the only problem there would be verse twelve is that they have to be the husband of one wife, so that wouldn't work for women yeah. deacons. So that's why it seems to me that the de- those are clearly laid out for men deacons, verses eight through ten, verses twelve through thirteen. Then it seems like he's doing like a, uh, what would you call it, a parenthesis, right in the middle of his conversation. He says, "Oh yeah, by the way, this is how women deacons ought to be." Maybe like and fine, oh. yeah. And admittedly, there's not really any other talk besides here and the one mentioned in Acts. It it makes sense because then verse 12 is only for a husband, so of course he would put verse 11 before that. You know what I mean? He couldn't
1: really compare the woman to that.
0: Yeah. Could could be verses 8 through 10 or for both. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. Verse ten does say though these men must also first be tested. So again, it seems to point directly to men and he seems to just be making a quick statement about the women and I would say women deacons.
1: Yeah. Because there's no reason why he would split the that. Yeah. Chris. Well actually you know, the fact that they you know, first they talk about the pastor mm-hmm. managing his own family. Mm-hmm. And so obviously pastor has to have you know a wife's commission
0: and a family is If he's married, so, right. Right. And I I kind of looked
1: at it as kind of a parallel in the same way. I think he can also have
0: another family position as well. Yeah, and that could be Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be a valid um way to to um support the the other side of the argument which um you know this this here sometimes we talk about significant truths in scripture and we disagree on them. But some of them are, you know, critical to our understanding of the gospel. This one is not something I would die over one way or the other, and I'm not just saying that just because you know, hey, we can't, we can't come to a conclusion. But there are often places like that in Scripture, and that's why we need to make sure that we're majoring on the major things in Scripture and minoring on the minors. We do want to make sure we understand the Scriptures as best we can, but this is not one that, that you would uh, to bur- be burned at the stake for. Gail, did you have a question or comment? Um, well that that could be seen as a form of teaching or or having authority over men. And um the same argument's been made for solos, however, of of, of singing, that it's a way of, of teaching. Um but but what we do know for sure is that scripture is clear that women should not verse twelve of chapter two, I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over man. So um and that's based on the structure of creation not that men are better than women or that they can even do a better job necessarily but it is that god created the man first and the woman second and the woman is to to designed to complement the man and uh yeah yeah um yeah, that's that's a tough one to uh to make a dissection.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Trish. hmm I my understanding teaching scriptures teach us
1: teaching Yeah. I think teaching comes in and if we're being creative and interpreting and explaining. So. Yeah. so I I mean my opinion would be that if we're reading scripture, we're
0: not doing our own community. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's that is a that is certainly a difficult one to think through. Um so I don't know if I have a um good response for that. Um any other thoughts on that, Ken?
2: Those things to our lives that helps us to live God when we apply the word to our lives. If you read the verse already four seven that says, "But nothing but have nothing to do with worldly fables. Uh, fables fit only for old women." On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of God. And we we as Christians, that's what Paul is. yeah
0: yeah yeah good That's helpful well let's uh continue and I'll let you uh think about that some more and and I'll do the same the third thing that Paul tells Timothy to do is to um protect the gospel by remaining faithful in ministry, and I'm going to breeze through this um let me let's see you don't have any blanks for that so Basically, what Paul tells them is that you need to watch out for the needs of the flock. He talks about um, making sure that that there are proper relationships between older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and how they're teaching each other and so on, and then that they're supposed to take care of widows, chapter five verses three through sixteen um that how they're supposed to treat elders, chapter five verses seventeen through twenty, how to treat slaves, chapter six verses one and two and how to treat the wealthy, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. And he says they need to maintain personal balance. And um, so, I wish we had time to, to do that, but but we don't. So, let me give you the key lessons from the book of 1 Timothy. Number one, shepherding, that is pastoring, includes both practice and theory. Paul doesn't talk a whole lot about... Um, how to do every single thing when it comes to leading a church. And he does talk about theological accuracy and the importance to have sound doctrine, but he seems to, to move much more quickly than he does in, in a lot of the other epistles to the practical care of the church. And so, it's true that there is no substitute for knowing the Word and what God wants, but but, but just knowing the Word of God is not helpful enough. Okay, If we just simply became monks, I guess you could say, and, and go out in our own little worlds and learn the Scriptures and knew it inside and out as best as we could. And we never applied it. It would be uh, of no value, really. So, um, so he, tells, he tells Timothy that it needs to be a practical thing as well as a doctrinal thing. Number two, church leadership is, more, is much more demanding than glamorous. Much more demanding than glamorous. Timothy and and every minister of the Gospel is called to be faithful. And most often we think of the reward for that type of service being public fame, maybe a bigger stage to preach in front of, or a lot of people giving thanks. But preaching faithfully, Paul explains to Timothy, is very often a thankless job. People questioning the way that he's uh, doing things, the people questioning his own character and things like that. And, and of course, in addition to that, all sorts of other uh, problems arising in the church. And so, for Timothy, the preaching ministry was going to be often misunderstood and mischaracterized. It's more often that you find out about a pastor through... Uh, some sort of sin that they committed or moral failure rather than the ones who tirelessly work and unselfishly give themselves to a local body. And so that's why one of the themes here of this book or one of the truths that we can learn from this book is that church leadership is much more demanding than glamorous. And number three, ministry is the maintenance, uh, is the maintaining a balance between commitment and contentment. Commitment and contentment. In order for Timothy to do well in this leadership role, he has to run the race for a long time and not give up. So, he needed to see that, 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 um, that he needed to be committed. Let me have you look at chapter 6, verse 6. And we'll read down through verse 11 see a little bit more of what Paul is saying. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then he goes on to say, uh, fight the, the good fight of faith. The way to counteract the discontentment and the warped motives of this world is to to maintain sound doctrine, to to make sure you are faithful in your ministry. Um, and that means that we need to have this proper balance between godliness and contentment, commitment and, and, con, and contentment, not giving up. Well, let's see uh, how far we can get through on Titus, and we may uh, continue this next week, but... Titus is the next book chronologically. Any questions on First Timothy or thoughts? Bill?
2: I got a comment the first chapter. Yeah. Don't let these Judaizers get in the church and destroy the church by mixing law and grace and if you have a deacon, husband of uh, one wife, some of the guys have more than one, and he tells him to make absolutely sure you do not elect them as a bishop, a deacon, a teacher, or whatever. Yeah. You know, because they were in the spring era.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I... uh I think that is the case. I think we see see that even more really in Titus not not necessarily the um the charge against polygamy so much but against the judaizers uh we see that in Titus and 2 Timothy All right good any other thoughts or questions All right Titus Paul wrote this uh this is the second one of his pastoral epistles, epistles that he wrote probably around 65 AD um He wrote it for one specific purpose. Turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Paul's telling Titus, okay, I've given you this mission. You need to set in order the things in this church that remain Paul had been to Crete this is the island uh, just to the southeast of Italy and he wanted to make sure that that Titus set the things in order so he wanted to uh, get rid of some of these problems that were going on in the church which we'll talk about a brief outline on the back that the church chapter one the church must maintain good order the church must maintain good doctrine and the church must maintain good deeds we talked about how Paul talked about good order. So, we'll skip through most of chapter 1 and we'll we'll focus more on the second two there. Good doctrine and good deeds. The Cretan church that Paul directs Titus to set in order was self-centered and fruitless. It had adopted a pagan philosophy and as a result, a gap had grown between the claims of the Christians and the lifestyles of these Supposed Christians. Okay, so they, they claimed to be a certain type of people, but their lifestyles didn't match up. And so Paul's saying, set in order what's going on inside that church. Um, and among the threats to this decent order were false teaching and teachers, and the challenge of living an authentic Christian witness in the face of corruption. So the first thing that, that Titus needed to look at was these false teachers apparently these false teachers were a serious problem in in this location paul describes these in chapter 1 verse 10 through 16 as rebellious empty talkers and deceivers and especially he says especially those of the circumcision which means they were affiliated with some way with a jewish custom but their effect was that they were upsetting whole families, chapter 1. And they were doing it by, by their teaching. They were ruining whole households. And all of it was motivated by, verse 16, um, sordid gain. Actually, that's um, it's not verse 16. Verse, verse 11, yep. The end of verse 11, sordid gain or dishonest gain. So they had a desire to, to exalt themselves And in doing so, they were tearing down the church. So he's saying, you need to set in order these false teachers. And then also this false Christian living. Um, This church, or at least this city, was, was full of people who were known for their corruption. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. Okay, So, when people think of Cretans, they're pretty corrupt people. And Paul's like, from what I know of them, I would agree. So, so this seems to be creeping into, if not completely uh, saturating the entire church there in Crete. It's not a good thing for the church of Jesus Christ to be seen as, as lazy and, and liars and so on. And so, he challenges them to live up to their callings. And, and um, Titus had a really big task ahead of him. Well, what is Paul's advice to Titus? What does he say? First, he says, put things in order. Chapter 1, put things in order. Um, the church had some some pretty rough periods as far as following God and and. Titus was to get in there and 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 do some work but but why is it so important that these false teachers are silenced verse eleven tells us why chapter one verse eleven who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families or they're ruining whole households teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid or dishonest gain so they're like they're like these uh these carnivorous animals out in the wild who are preying on the church. They're looking for people who they they can take and uh, pretend to to take them under their wing and really what they're going to do is attack and kill them. Destroy whole households. That's what Paul's saying. So you need to protect your people. Protect these people in this way. Secondly, he needed to silence these men because... um, because some of the, the flock was sliding into immorality. Look at verse 13. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Skip down to verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Not exactly in a, descript, a description that that would characterize a true believer. Worthless for any good deed? Is that what God created Christians for? And so Paul says, you need to, to uh, get rid of these false teachers. You need to silence them. Secondly, in, in addition to putting things in order, he also needed to teach the people how to live. The, um, the Cretans were apparently a people without a lot of cultural models or icons uh, pointing them to, uh, to a good life. But Paul expected them to conform to what the Scriptures said. And so, if they didn't have good secular models to follow, they certainly had good biblical models to follow, and so that's where they needed to focus. In uh, their introduction to the New Testament, Carson, Moo, and Morris give some insightful words about this letter. They say, this letter brings out something of what we might call the civilizing function of Christianity. The letter is clear evidence that the Christian church is not intended to function only in cozy, respectable, middle-class environments. The gospel is for the most unpromising of people as well. So Paul's telling Titus, listen, it's, it's a rough situation for you to walk into, but the gospel is powerful to change. And so Paul instructs Titus to organize this congregation in such a way that it would be in submission to or in conjunction with the glory of the gospel. That he should be an example. And part of that example includes giving good models for your church members to follow. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Okay, so older men, you need to set an example for younger men. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And then younger women, verse, verse 4, so that they may encourage, the older women, that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. And then he talks about younger uh, men in verse 6. Basically, what he's trying to set out a model for all the different age groups to be able to look up to and see and be able to follow. And this is not just an individual responsibility. This is not just, okay, that that person needs to, to be a good example. It's it's something that, as a whole church, we need to make sure that all of us are are being good models for each other, but we're also making sure that people... Who we are not, we, we're not everyone, but but other people in the church are also being good models for other people. And that's why Titus need to get in there and and um and shake some things up by putting things in order. He gives instructions for slave and slaves in chapter two verses nine and ten. And um let me see how close we are to finishing. Um let me um stop there and uh, open up for questions. We'll finish the three lessons from Titus next week, and then we'll we'll also finish 2 Timothy. Any questions or comments? All right. Well, we've got some things to think about with regard to application of what we've seen today, and um, if you have follow-up questions next week or thoughts, then I'll ser- certainly be happy to, to address those if I can. And um, let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank You that You are not the God of confusion, but that You are God of order. And uh, we pray that You'd help our church to be able to reflect that um, characteristic in You, that we would be also a church of order, that we would not be seeking to usurp our uh, positions or overstep our bounds that can happen both for um, both for the any any member of the church but also it can happen leaders taking uh, taking on too large of roles or or um, overstepping their bounds with regard to um, with regard to leading and so I pray that you give us wisdom in, in each of our lives as we seek to honor you in this church. I pray that you'd help us to be unified around the the gospel and around the essentials of the gospel, and that we would um, not just be concerned about the doctrine and knowing what is right, but also but also living it and make, making sure that our life lifestyles match to what we say we believe, match our our gospel claims, not to. Say that that doctrine is unimportant in any way, but certainly it is unimportant if it's not accompanied by practice. And so we pray that you would help us to combine both of those things. We can't have good practice without good doctrine, and we can't have uh, uh, we can't just have one without the other. And so we pray that you'd help us to balance both of those things and accomplish your purposes in, in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen.